So for the last couple of months, we've been going through the Gospel of John, and I love John. It's so different than the other Gospels, telling the same story, but in such a different style. And so we've been reading through slowly the Gospel of John and taking a look at it. And, and John wrote this Gospel with the express purpose that the readers might know that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and that in knowing Jesus... They would believe and they would receive eternal life. And so that is what we, our invitation is, through, has been throughout this gospel, is to know Jesus as a son of God, as the Messiah, and to experience an abundant eternal life. Absolutely. <laughs> it was like a dramatic pause right there. I got it working now. I know what I'm doing here, kind of. Um, so in our text today, we're going to be in John chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 12, and we find Jesus amongst a frenzied crowd of people. When's the last time uh, you found yourself in a frenzied crowd of people? Often it happens at sporting events, often it happens at concerts, but there was one experience we had that was unlike anything I've experienced elsewhere. Uh, many years ago, um, we were recently married, so this is 17, 18 years ago, uh, we took a family trip to Italy. And we went there uh, to meet her, her parents, her family that lives overseas, and uh, we were there on New Year's Eve. And we happened to be in Venice at that point, and we decided to go down to St. Mark's Square. Now, St. Mark's Square is just massive, massive. I should have looked it up to see uh, how many acres or square blocks it covers. Just a massive open area uh, right by uh, St. Mark's Cathedral. And then surrounding the square is little shops and businesses and coffee shops and all that sort of stuff, but just a, a wide open space. And so we heard from locals that that's where you go to celebrate New Year's. And so we went down there with, I don't know, 10,000 other people, I would imagine. It was not quiet. Can no. I just say that? It was not quiet. Well, and it got incredibly chaotic as, you know, leading up to midnight, people started throwing firecrackers, but not the little ones, like the M80s, blowing up, you know, at people's feet uh, just all around the area. And eventually, midnight comes, and you count down, and there's cheering. And then what happens in a little square, like a big square like that, is there's only about six or eight roads that connect uh, to that square. And so 10,000 people now tried to flood through six narrow little streets. And it was incredibly chaotic. It, it just, it's just a crush of people. You can't move on your own. You don't choose your direction. You just move wherever the 12 people pushing in on you are moving, right? And for me, it was kind of fun and exciting. It was like, oh my goodness, I have never experienced anything like that. But that's because I stood above most people. I could see where we were going. I could see where we were headed. You can imagine the people in our group that stand a little bit shorter and find themselves just pressed into the chest of random people, you know, pressed into the back of the person in front of them, moving wherever the crowd goes, but having no clue where they're moving. Because of that, there was some pretty different reactions to uh, the experience we had that day. Some of us thought it quite exciting and enjoyable, and others, it terrifying and confusing and uh, not a good experience. In the same way, we're going to see Jesus enter Jerusalem today. A huge procession, crowds of people, and, and we're going to see differing reactions to who Jesus might be in this moment. 
And this is going to be the first day of the week of Passover. So this is the, the first day of Passion Week. At the end of the week, Jesus will be crucified. And so for Passover, there were thousands and thousands of pilgrims that would come to Jerusalem. The historian Josephus even estimates, and, and some people think he's estimating high, but over a million people coming to Jerusalem for, for this festival. And it's a week-long festival. And so there would be camps all outside of Jerusalem where people would camp and just the whole city would be so full, these huge, huge crowds. And so it was the first day of Passover and the Sanhedrin has been trying to kill Jesus. So the the religious leaders, as we've seen, have been plotting to kill Jesus because he has so many followers and they're feeling very threatened and they're worried about Rome. And so Jesus has stayed away from Jerusalem. And now he's returning. He's coming back on the first day of Passover. John 12, verse verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took balm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So can you imagine thousands and thousands of people crowding around as Jesus is entering. There's palm trees everywhere. There's, there's people cutting down palm trees and, and kind of like we would lay out the red carpet sort of deal. They, they lay down the palm trees for Jesus to walk over, the palm branches, for Jesus to walk over. And, and this mass of people is shouting together, Hosanna, Hosanna. And that simply means save us, salvation. This is a, a phrase that actually became um, an exclamation of praise. And so it's something that they would say to the Savior. So save us, Savior, save us. And this crowd had gathered partly because of what they had heard about Jesus. And they had heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus had had raised, called out, and Lazarus has raised from the dead. And can you imagine the the, the thought process of people who, who've heard this story? So there's a guy who can raise people from the dead? Like, what could happen if we had a leader who could raise people from the dead. Like, how would that change things for us? And so people come in a big crowd and they shout, Hosanna. They shout, save us. And they shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this is a quotation out of the Old Testament, out of Israel's scriptures, uh, Psalm chapter 118. And Greg read it for us this morning uh, during our song service. It says, I'll give thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Speaking of Jesus, who is being rejected by Israel, but is at the center of God's plan, is in fact God in human flesh. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Hosanna. 
Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're calling this of Jesus. They're proclaiming him as the one God has sent for their salvation. From the house of the Lord, we will bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. As I skip to the end, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Quite often, Israel, uh, having very few scrolls, having very many, very little uh, written uh, word scripture, they would reference passages by most, by most popular phrases or by the first phrase in a section. And so they're speaking of this, this prophecy, this hope for Israel that God would send someone, a Messiah, a Savior, who would come and rescue them. And so as Jesus enters Jerusalem, they cry, save us, you who has come from God. And finally, and then they shout, blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is the king. And Israel has a long history of kings. At first, when God brought them out of Egypt, God was their king. And God led them through Moses and other leaders into the promised land. And once they had settled into the promised land, Israel asked God for a king. And God said, I don't, I don't think you want one. <laughs> do you know what kings will do? They'll, they'll send you off to war. They'll make you pay taxes. But Israel insisted that they wanted a king. And they had, a, uh, overall, I mean, they had a few really good kings. But overall, having a king went pretty badly for Israel. And yet, they believed that that's what they needed. They needed a good king. They needed a king to rule over them. That's how they imagined they would be saved. And as as God walked with Israel, there is this prophecy that there would be a king from the line of David who would reign forever. And this is the king that would not fail. He would reign forever. And yet, what God was prophesying there, God's vision for a forever king was quite different than what the Israelites envisioned when they asked for a king. In fact, watch how Jesus enters in verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it was written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. You know, you know, Sarah, this is one of the very few passages um, that I prefer to read in the King James Version. Really? Let's not, okay? <laughs> okay. All right. I don't know. The uh, Old English just kind of rings in this passage. At any rate, it is an awkward passage. It's a confusing and strange thing, and let me tell you why. As a king enters, uh, typically after war, victorious, the king enters the city. There's a massive procession. He might be wearing white. He's certainly sitting on the biggest, most beautiful war horse the nation has. He's followed by his generals, and there's a celebration and a party. And here comes Jesus being hailed as king, sitting on a donkey. He's wearing ordinary clothes, riding a little donkey, and the people are shouting for a king, but surely there's confusion in the crowd. Surely there's some sort of confusion as as Jesus enters in such a humble way. And yet, it had been prophesied. This from Zechariah chapter 9, this very passage, don't be afraid, daughter Zion, Uh, see your king is coming. He's seated on a donkey's colt. Jesus is to be a very different sort of king. 
Let's continue the story in verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things were written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word and many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. There are a variety of responses to Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And it's interesting here that John says his disciples didn't understand what was happening when it was happening. They didn't, they didn't understand the big picture of what God was doing. In fact, it, John says at first his disciples didn't understand this only after he had been glorified, until after he had been exalted and praised and lifted up and raised from the dead, set apart, did they realize that the prophecies that had been spoken about the Messiah, the, the Messiah King, were being fulfilled in Jesus. And so the Pharisees see the nation flocking to Jesus. They see him beginning to hail him as their new king. And they have a concern that is a very valid one. Last week we were in the first part of chapter 12 and we talked about this in a little bit more detail. You see, Israel is worried that uh, if, if or the, the leaders in Israel are worried that if the nation declares they have a new king, Rome will crack down on them. And their concern is very real. You see, uh, Israel is a vassal state to Rome under the Roman Empire that controls the majority of the world in this, uh, at this point in history. Israel is able to have a little bit of its own government. It's able to exercise some religious freedom. Uh, but Rome is a cruel nation, a cruel power over them. And so uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders in Israel are quite concerned that if we let this Jesus thing go too far, Rome is going to come and crack down on us. If the people begin to declare, we have a new king, just imagine uh, what will happen. And so Jesus does receive the title and the praise of king in this moment as he enters Jerusalem, and yet he does so sitting on a donkey in a very different and ordinary sort of way. It really begs the question, what kind of king is Jesus? Because the people's what they're imagining, what they're envisioning is quite different than what's happening here. Jesus isn't coming in with an army. He isn't coming in to, to conquer Rome. He's not wielding his power as a weapon against people, but rather he comes in as a very different kind of king. I would venture to say that he's redefining for people what kingship looks like. He's redefining what it looks like to be a good and loving and godly king. And Jesus, King Jesus, will be the one who sacrifices his life for the sake of his people. If we continue down to verse 27, there's this fascinating um, verse, uh, a couple of verses that really show the humanity of Jesus, because we believe that Jesus is fully God and also fully human. And and as he's entering Rome, he knows that at the end, uh, entering Jerusalem, he knows that at the end of this week he will he will have to die on a cross. He knows he's already decided that he will sacrifice himself. And can you imagine the anticipation? I mean, can you imagine the feelings as a human 
associated with knowing that's coming in a few days. And so this is what he says in verse 27. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It's like, my soul is troubled. I imagine anguish. I imagine uh, nervousness. I, I mean, I imagine a lot of emotions with this. And yet Jesus is saying, for this very reason, I came. I became a king in human, God in human form for this reason that I might sacrifice myself for the sake of my people, that I would lay down my life for others so that others may live. You know, there's a couple fascinating things in that, in that passage for me. Um, the first one being last week, uh, one of the Pharisees in Israel said it's better for one man to die then the whole nation perish, right? Uh, in a very practical posture, he says, whoever Jesus is, it really doesn't matter at this point because if this keeps going, all our nation will be taken from us. Therefore, we're better off if this one guy dies, no matter who he is. And then to see in juxtaposition, Jesus' posture in this moment, Father, glorify your name. This absolute selfless statement of, may my life bring glory to you. And this is where we start to turn the corner and ask, what does this text ask of us? What does this text have for us today? Like, what is God teaching us? What is John trying to enlighten uh, to, to us that we might learn more about the way of Jesus? And the whole conversation here is of Jesus as king. Israel is proclaiming this is our king. And so today we continue to use that language. We continue to say that Jesus is our king and that he sits on an eternal throne. But I have to pause and recognize that it's kind of a strange proclamation. I think of like cartoon castles. Okay. When I think of king, is that what you think no, of? No, okay. not at all. But that's thank you for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> that's I feel like that was really important I need to say that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh no, what does it mean to have a king? Now in first century Israel, uh it, it meant um an authority, a power over. I mean a king was unquestionable. He could do what he wanted when he wanted. He held the power over people over this nation. And that's a curious thing for us from our democratic mindset to consider what does it mean that Jesus is a king? How does that affect our lives? Well, I think one significant point to make in that is it defines our identity in a really unique way. You see, we live in a culture that says, you do you, uh, you are the master of, you know, your life, and, and, and you live it the way you want to. Uh, you get a vote in the decisions, the nation in which you live, right? We, this is the way we think, and we are just um, radically independent in the way we think. But the conversation about Jesus as our king robs us of a little bit of that but I think in a really good way. Like all the things I've produced in my life, uh, mediocre and some quite poor uh, results, uh, I think of releasing some of me and inviting the king who created this world, the king who loves and would sacrifice himself to guide my life might make a remarkable difference in, in who I am, in how I operate, in how I live. You see, our identity is shaped by the fact that he is king and I am not. 
So I posture myself in a way in which I can learn from and follow and learn to trust more fully in a king that didn't operate anything like the kings of this world, but instead for the sake of humanity, for the sake of his people whom he loves. And I can't help but think that this is the king who then invites us to be a part of his family. Like, come and be my child. Be a child of the king. It's not like a king is like, yeah, you're my subjects and I'm going to squash you because I can. But rather, this is the king who loves with with all power, who says, come and be a part. That's really rich because there's so much uh, language in scripture around inheritance. We have, we are heirs of God, heirs of the king. And, and that's really interesting. Yeah. To bring the king conversation into that. A king who rules over a nation who has adopted us into his household. That's rich language and idea. Yeah. So what, as we look at Jesus here, we see how Jesus is redefining what kingship looks like. And, and, and Mike is talking about how this defines who we are, our identity. I want to ask the next question. And how does being a Jesus follower, how does being a child of God redefine how we live? Redefine how we operate in the world, how we operate in our families and in our homes, how we operate with friends and in our relationships, in our communities, how, how we operate in our workplaces. You know, um, one of the most beautiful things I've gotten to do in my life and also the, one of the roles in my life that has challenged me the most is that of a parent. <laughs> Cause as the parent, right? Like we, we have all these ideas that, that we're supposed to, know what to do, that we're supposed to to manage all the things, that we're supposed to model what it looks like to follow Jesus, and yes, and yes, and yes to all that. And also, I mess up so often. I, I, I mess up so often. And so as I ask this question, what does it look like to follow Jesus in that role? I'm like, well, Jesus is redefining for me what that looks like. It means leading with love, like Jesus led with love. It means apologizing to my children a lot when I mess up, (laughs) because I mess up a lot instead of just, you know, taking on a superior posture because I'm the parent and they're the child. It means um, leaning in to God and continually modeling what it looks like to get back up when I fall down. So following Jesus redefines how I live as a parent. And so I want to ask us today, how does following Jesus redefine how we operate in our relationships with our families, with our spouses, or or with our, our parents, or with our friends What does it look like to have an attitude of agape love? What does it look like to have an attitude of of service instead of authority in our relationships? When we enter workplaces, and and many of us do, um, you'll notice as you enter a new place, it kind of you feel the culture. Like a little subculture. You can, you can kind of feel what's the atmosphere like? What are the, the norms and the rules of this place? How does this place operate? 
And this world will tell us that when you enter into a place like that, then you need to operate however that place operates. And yet, as we are citizens of the kingdom of God, we are invited to look to Jesus and to look to the Holy Spirit to set the standards for us on how we will engage. And as we look at this King Jesus, he engages with love. He engages with grace. He engages by looking out for the least of these. And that is how we are called to look out. You know, as you, as you describe all that, I, I find myself thinking of a world watching us to get an idea of who King Jesus is. And just the obligation and opportunity it is to demonstrate the way of Jesus in this world. We don't do it perfectly. Uh, I think we have a lot of room to improve um, on what it looks like to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to walk in the way of our King. We each find ourselves in a different place in our faith journeys today. Some of us have been following Jesus for a long time, and I would invite us to consider what does it look like to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to live into his kingdom here on earth. For some of us, we haven't made that commitment, and I just want you to know you are invited to follow a loving king, a loving savior, Jesus, who gave himself for our sake. Let's pray as we close today. God, we thank you for this day, for this time, for an opportunity to, again, uh, dig into your word, uh, to sing together, to have conversations together. God, we're grateful uh, for this opportunity. Spirit, we're we're thankful that you uh, work in and amongst us as we gather together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.